If you like music's greatest mysteries, you've got to check out Dan Rather's The Big Interview for some incredible true stories from the biggest names in music. Check out the podcast sometime. On this episode of Music's Greatest Mysteries, a national treasure goes to war with the tax man. That was mind-blowing because it was the one way he knew that he could get out of it. Then a group called Death vanishes for 30 years. Are they the first punk rock band? What was the birth of punk? And later, karaoke is king, but does Frank Sinatra's anthem drive people to murder? Few musicians are as universally admired as the man known as the red-headed stranger. One name superstar, Willie. You know who they're talking about. <laughs> even if you don't like country music, even if you're a metalhead, you're a rap guy, you still love Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson is world famous and still making music into his late 80s. But for a time in the 1990s, he owes millions to the US government and faces the end of his career. So how does Willie Nelson go head to head with the IRS and win? Willie Nelson is absolutely an embodiment of the American dream. Came from a poor family. He lived with his grandmother and his sister in a little shack up in Abbott, Texas. Nelson starts singing dance halls and honky-tonks at the age of 13, and eventually moves to Nashville to pursue a music career. And although he finds success as a songwriter, he fails to match it as a performer. He had had some really big hits, like Crazy uh, by Patsy Cline, was written by Willie Nelson. But it didn't work for him as a singer. He had short hair at the time and played the game and looked the part, and still they wouldn't let him in the party. And he said, screw it, and he went to Austin, Texas. In 1971, Willie Nelson leaves the Nashville music scene behind for Austin, Texas, where he grows out his hair and pioneers the outlaw country movement. Starting with his 1973 album, Shotgun Willie, Nelson goes on to an unprecedented string of hits and becomes a country music superstar. I mean, Redheaded Stranger is one of the most successful country albums of all time. And you follow that up with Stardust and all these other albums that just keep producing hit after hit. He was making a ton of money. More money than Nelson has ever dreamed of as a boy growing up in his grandmother's shack. He builds a complex in the Texas Hill Country with a 5,400-square-foot cabin, a recording studio, and a nine-hole golf course. And Nelson is never one to shy away from helping out his friends, sometimes to his detriment. Willie's always been Willie. I've seen him give away tons of stuff. Did people take advantage of him? Yes, absolutely. Because of bad investments and not leaving the right people in charge of his money, he wasn't paying enough taxes. Willie's image as a pot-smoking outlaw makes him an easy target for the IRS, and they hit him with a staggering tax bill. He owed around $32 million. They negotiated it down to 16. The IRS finally agreed to take $6 million 
in a settlement. But even still, $6 million, I mean, where are you gonna come up with that? Nelson sells his music catalog, but it's still not enough. While Nelson is in Hawaii, he gets a tip that the feds are planning a raid on his Texas ranch. He gets word, you know, hey, the IRS is coming in and he's afraid they're gonna go in and start taking stuff out and auctioning it off to get some of their money. The one thing he made sure did not slip out of his grasp was his guitar trigger. His guitar trigger, I mean, it has holes in it and it's nasty looking, but that thing's gonna be in a museum someday. It's iconic. So he calls his daughter and I was like, go get Trigger and bring it to Hawaii and hand deliver it to me. And she did. That is a rock star Willie Nelson move. With Trigger secured, IRS agents seize Nelson's property and possessions, but the auction barely puts a dent in Nelson's tax bill. That's when Willie comes up with an ingenious plan to battle the IRS, armed with two assets, his songs and his guitar. There's something outlaw about that, you know, like the IRS and him are in a showdown and he's not bringing a gun, he's bringing trigger. Coming up, Nelson digs himself out of debt with the help of his Martin six string. What a genius idea. Your record label is, in fact, the Internal Revenue Service. And then, is Death the first punk band? Was Death the first punk band? I think a strong argument could be made. In 1991, Willie Nelson is on the hook for $6 million in unpaid taxes when he strikes an unusual deal with the Internal Revenue Service. In true Willie fashion, thinking outside of the box, and maybe it was that stuff he was smoking, just cuts a deal with the IRS to record an album to cover his debt. I'll make a record, and I'll give you all the royalties from the record. Well, they look at his past records and think, we might actually make more money off of this. Isn't that nuts? But Willie plans to play by his own rules. He's just doing songs that he's already been doing in concerts for years. It's just him and a guitar. Dude was smart. I mean, on a normal Willie Nelson album, he has dozens of musicians. This is what you get. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to spend extra money on musicians or editing, producing, engineering. It was the one way he knew that he could get out of it without having to actually really do anything different than he's doing every day anyway. Willie calls his new album the IRS Tapes, and it's only available for purchase through the mail. And it has a massive backing from the US government. Now you have the IRS actually promoting this so that they can make their money back. And what a genius idea. Your record label is, in fact, the Internal Revenue Service. And there was a huge push on TV for this. There were commercials everywhere, and, um, and it worked. Willie Nelson, he's been there for those who needed him, and he's helped thousands of people across this land. Now, Willie needs your help, and he's reaching out the best way he can through his music. 
They became the promotions team. They became the marketing team. This is the only Willie Nelson album where proceeds go directly to retiring his IRS debt. Honestly, that album, it sold pretty good for a solo project of him standing there playing by himself. The IRS tapes earn Nelson three and a half million dollars. And more importantly, buy him more time to pay off his tax debt, which he finally does in 1994. Nobody is as resilient as Willie Nelson. You know, it feels good that he got out of that scrape and prospered. Boy, did he prosper. Willie even finds a way to make some more cash on his battle with the IRS. So Willie tried all kinds of things. I remember he did a Super Bowl commercial where he shaved off his beard at one point. You made a little mistake on your taxes. You owe $30 million. I what? Action. This play calls for a smoothie. Cut. Action. My face is burning. Today, Willie Nelson has an estimated net worth of $25 million, in large part thanks to his deal with the IRS. Willie scammed the IRS. Now, I guess I use the word scam very uh, loosely because Willie obviously he paid his debt back, but he did it in his own way. Some people are so charismatic that it doesn't matter what you do. Willie Nelson can almost get away with anything. Harsh, aggressive, irreverent. Punk rock shocks the world in the late 1970s with fast riffs and politically charged lyrics. But since its inception, there's been an ongoing debate about where punk is born. In America, people like to think of New York as being the place that punk originated with the Ramones. But England, of course, would beg to differ. You have the Sex Pistols and the Damned and Clash in England. But is it possible that it's none of the above? That the godfathers of this genre are a band you've never even heard of? When we talk about punk rock and we try to put it into the canon and we say, here's what the history is. Do we really know exactly what was the birth of punk? The further back we go, the more we leave London, and New York and wind up in Detroit. Detroit has always been a hard rock town. It's just a working class city that loves their rock. And that's where we start to see bands like the MC5, the Stooges, and this band called Death. Detroit, 1971. The Motown sound dominates the Motor City. But a band of brothers, Bobby, David, and Dennis Hackney, find a different influence. David, the leader of the band, discovered The Who and Alice Cooper, and he wanted to express that sort of anger and aggression. They had an edge politically and really said, you know what, I'm not interested in maintaining the status quo. They just kept woodshedding and getting tighter and tighter and faster and faster. So what started out as hard rock becomes this real high velocity assault. After a tragic accident takes the life of their father, David convinces his brothers to name the band Death. But in Detroit, their fast sound and morbid name 
don't gain traction with white or black audiences. No one around them understood what they were doing. All their friends were listening to Earth, Wind, and Fire. People around them said, why are you making this white boy music? People don't really tend to understand the judgment that comes from not making quote unquote black music. They just wanted to make the music that was in their soul, which sounded like punk rock before almost anyone else was doing it. Coming up, Death lands a record deal in 1975, a year before the Ramones' self-titled album comes out. Does this make them the first to play punk rock? He's like, I'm not gonna have a band named Death. Who's gonna buy a record named Death? And later, what is it about Frank Sinatra's anthem that causes listeners to kill? Since the emergence of punk rock, most historians have a short list of its creators. Both the Ramones and Sex Pistols emerge in 1976. But is it possible that the true godfathers of punk are a band from Detroit named Death? Death is one of the early purveyors of punk music. There's no doubt about it. In 1975, Death appears to be on the verge of global recognition when a meeting is set up with one of music's most important producers. They were put in touch with Clive Davis, the famous producer and label honcho in New York. Clive Davis wanted them to, to go to work for him, and he wanted to work with him. Davis is willing to record the band, but has one condition. Supposedly, Clive Davis had uh, objected to the name, said they had to change it. No one wanted to market a band called Death. No one wanted to sign a band called Death. No one wanted to go see a band called Death. Five Davis, he's like, I'm not gonna have a band named Death. Who's gonna buy a record named Death? They said no to hell with Clive Davis and refused to change the name. One of the most punk things they did was say, no, we're gonna stick to our guns. After recording seven tracks in the studio, Death walks out on their deal with Davis and into obscurity. It's really sort of a story that is very common in rock and roll. They took a shot at the brass ring and didn't quite get there. Meanwhile, punk takes off in New York and London with no mention of the Hackney Brothers from Detroit. Band leader David Hackney dies in 2000 passing on the master recordings to his brothers. In 2009, the surviving members, Bobby and Dennis, re-release the original recordings, giving death new life. The ball started rolling. That's when like people start paying attention and we want to reissue the single. That turns into, are there more tracks? And there was a huge reaction immediately. Not only were the, was it the fact that they were just a band that no one had heard of, but they were three African-American brothers who had created this sound. In 2012, the documentary film A Band Called Death leads to Bobby and Dennis reuniting the band for a tour. 
death's resurrection sends shockwaves to the punk status quo. I am not going to tick off a whole bunch of Sex Pistols fans by saying that Death was the first punk rock band, but they were definitely one of the first. Was Death the first punk band? I would bet that all those other groups would beg to differ, but I think a strong argument could be made that they really are. Frank Sinatra. Old Blue Eyes, chairman of the board. Many associate him with his biggest hit. I did it my way. A song that's delighted crowds, inspired covers. And become a staple for amateur crooners worldwide. Frank Sinatra's My Way, it's just that karaoke song that everybody freaking knows. But is there something more sinister about Sinatra's standard? Is it possible that this song has sparked a Filipino murder spree? Man was found shot. He was bashed with a belt. And if so, why? Karaoke-inspired violence has been around as long as bars have served booze and given patrons microphones. Photos show the horrific facial injuries a young man suffered when he was bashed at a city karaoke bar. But across the globe, it has a deeper meaning. And nowhere is the sport of karaoke more important than in the Philippines. It's everyone's release in the Philippines. It's sort of like karaoke on steroids. There's clicks, there's competition. You honestly have to see it firsthand. There's no way to explain how big it is. The Philippines karaoke scene is notoriously cutthroat, and for some reason, the song My Way made it literally cutthroat as well. My Way has been a staple of karaoke bars since Sinatra first sings it in 1969, and is often considered one of the best songs for men to sing. Legend has it that a bouncer objects to a 29-year-old's version and shoots him dead when he keeps singing. But that's just the beginning. Over two decades, there's been numerous murders, stabbings, and fistfights closely associated to this song. There are about 12 official deaths in the Philippines because of My Way, so much so that they have removed it from the karaoke queue, like you can't even find it at certain bars. The Filipino press even dubs the spree the My Way killings. So why My Way? Who knows what the trigger is? The point is, the song is the trigger. Next on Music's Greatest Mysteries, we answer the question, is it the environment or the song itself? There is an ominous quality to my way. It sounds like a suicide letter. For two decades, Philippine authorities struggled to stop a series of stabbings, assaults, and killings at karaoke bars. The only connection between the crimes is Frank Sinatra's classic, My Way, causing bars to remove the song from their machines and investigators to question My Way's intent. There is an ominous quality to My Way. And now the end is near. It sounds like a suicide letter. And so I face the 
final curtain. It has these succession of minor chords in unusual places. And a minor chord has this sort of sad, dark side to it. And now, as tears subside. It's almost like this subliminal thing going on and these chords that are kind of triggering sort of darker thoughts. So is it possible that Sinatra's words, written by Paul Anka in 1967, are responsible for these deaths? It would seem that considering the large amounts of people who have listened to the song My Way and not gone on uh, homicidal murder sprees, that it's probably unlikely that there's something inherent to that music in particular that would trigger this. I think the song has been oversung, and I think people were tired of it. And eventually, it turns into actual anger. Regardless of why, in 2018, the Filipino government, perhaps hoping to stem the violence, tries to ban karaoke in residential areas after 10 PM. Though a curfew may reduce the number of crooners, it remains to be seen whether it ends the My Way killings. A song that leads to murder. A punk band that refuses to change its name. And an icon who takes on the IRS. They're examples of the strong emotions music stirs in our souls. And they're all part of music's greatest mysteries. Thank you for joining us for Music's Greatest Mysteries, where we investigate the legendary mysteries surrounding the biggest names in music. Now remember, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, go ahead and leave us a review and don't keep the show a secret. Tell a friend. <laughs>